Inside Psychology Nerds, and welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. I'm Ryan Martin, one of the hosts of Psychology and Stuff, and I'm here, as always, with my co-host, chair of the UW-Green Bay Psychology Program, Dr. Georgina Wilson-Dungess. How are you, G? I am so excited. (laughs) (laughs) It is our 100th episode. It is. For those of you... There's my cowbell. <laughs> More wow. cowbell. Georgina came 100%. ready to party. She's got a happy 100th episode sign behind her. She has cowbell. She has uh, uh, what are those things called? And other kinds of noisemakers. So, yep. a party hat. What, what? Party hat. I have nothing. I'm in my office and there's not, not even anything on the wall behind me other than like pre pandemic planning I was doing. So, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm living in the moment. I'm living in the present, Ryan. So nice. Find me. <laughs> and, and we have got a really, really great uh, episode here with a bunch of all stars. So this is going to be really cool. We've got uh, five people to, uh, to talk to. And remind me what we asked them to prepare for today. Who is that one thing that they would like the world to know about psychology or, or something? like that. And so um, these are are what we call our all-stars, frequent visitors who have been sharing their wisdom and uh, engaging our audiences for a hundred episodes or 99 episodes. Today, uh, we're going to cap it off with with 100 episodes. So I'm super excited to, to hear what they have to say. Me too. And before we get to them, though, we need to talk to our intern, Kelsey. How's it going, Kelsey? Oh, you're muted, Kelsey. Oh, no. Okay. Off to a great start. <laughs> I am doing great. Good. Thank you so much for everything. And Kelsey, your work uh, on social media has been absolutely wonderful. So Kelsey runs the at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It has Woo! been a real tweet. Tweet. <laughs> real <laughs> A real treat is what I meant to say, but it worked out just fine as it was. Um, no, it's been a real treat. So I'm, I'm loving that stuff. Thank you very, very much. Thank you. Thank you for the- And so- you've been hurting us all, all the all-stars. That's Kelsey's job. So um, kudos to you for that as well. Yes. So definitely go check that out. If you haven't already, it's at Psych and Stuff, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. It's great, great stuff. So awesome. Should we get to it, G? Let's do it. All right. So we're going to start out with our first all-star here. She is a counseling psychologist who you have heard on our teletherapy episode, our careers in psych episode, as well as some others. It's Dr. Chris Vespia. How's it going, Chris? It's going okay. I will admit I have a noisy cat sitting at my feet right now. So I am... uh playing with the cat while I talk to you to keep her quiet. <laughs> this is the reality of, uh, of pandemic podcasting, right? Is it that is. you hear animals in the background. So I, I, I like it personally. Hey, it, it adds character to the whole thing, right? <laughs> yes. So tell me a little bit, what, uh, what do you want to say to listeners about the, the one thing that they should know about psychology? Well, the first thing I want to say is that I think this was too much pressure to put even on your all-stars because it's really one thing, right? Um, But uh, 
one of the episodes that I uh, was a part of for, uh, for this wonderful podcast was one talking about the effectiveness of psychotherapy as well. And um, what I didn't get to talk about in that episode was, um, you know, we talked a lot about how research shows us that psychotherapy is effective and it's you know, gives us a good argument for why people should should try that out. Um, however, we didn't talk about a lot of the inequities that there are in psychotherapy and what some of the research tells us about um, BIPOC communities, people of color, and their access of mental health services and also the quality of care that they receive. And I think particularly particularly during this pandemic time when we see our communities of color disproportionately affected by infection rates, death rates, more people grieving, more people who are frontline workers and suffering economically. We're also talking about a group of people who are less likely to access therapy services and that evidence also tells us are likely to receive lower quality care if they do. Um, so, you know, a meta-analysis that was done fairly recently on over 4 million participants um, showed that African Americans, Latinx Americans, um, Hispanic Latinx Americans um, have lower lifetime rates of seeking services. I don't think they included Native Americans in that survey, but other research that I've seen would say the same for those communities. A third or less of um, people of color who have a mental health diagnosis or a mental illness diagnosis um, are believed to seek therapy services. And that's, that's a real problem, right? Um, the good news that I would, I would say is that I think particularly psychology, and I'll, I'll brag on our own specialty for a minute here, Ryan, particularly counseling psychology, has been good at acknowledging some of the systemic um, ways that it has been involved in those inequities, and at least admitting that, and then starting to do some things um, to change it. And so when I was here last time, or one of those times, we talked about um, empirically supported treatments, and um, that's really kind of a universal approach to, to therapy saying, hey, we'll do these randomized controlled trials, therapies, they're going to work for everybody. And on the other end of the spectrum, we have folks who say, nope, you got to have a culturally specific treatment approach for each person in order to treat them effectively. But I think more and more now we're starting to realize um, that identity isn't a category, <laughs> Right? And as we talk more about intersectionality and multiple identities and all of those things, what we're starting to see now is a movement toward personally relevant treatments that combine some of the best of universal and group perspectives, but then also add in an individual perspective. So that was a lot of me talking, but that's, that's my one thing that's really more than one thing, but no, I'll, I'll take it because it's all one thing like wrapped together, which, which totally works for me. Do we have to, to back up a little yeah. bit to the sort of rationale or reason why? Mm -hmm. Do we have a sense for, I mean, is this disparity consistent with other forms of, of access to healthcare? I mean, do we see it greater here than we do for, for physical healthcare or, or about the same? Do you know? You know, I, I don't have the most recent health statistics. I know those are lower as well. 
-hmm. terms of seeking medical care. But I also know that, for example, African Americans are more likely, if they're suffering with a mental health condition, to go see their family physician than they are to see a mental health provider, right? So I would guess that those rates right. in general are lower for mental health care than they are for physical health care. But the reality is that we don't have um, uh, people from our BIPOC communities represented as well in the research because they do tend, well, I shouldn't say they tend, but there is evidence that members of these groups fear healthcare in many cases and have a much greater distrust of healthcare and there's good reason for it. So, I mean, I have my abnormal psychology students read, a, uh, read an article from medical research. In 2016, 50% of white medical students and residents um, held false beliefs about African-Americans physiologically, right? Including the belief that their skin is thicker. And so they don't need the same level of pain medication um, that, that others do. And even in the late 90s, an IRB approved study was done where they took the siblings of uh, folks who were in juvenile detention and they administered the drug <laughs> Fenfluramine, which you may know of as Fenfen, which was removed from right. FDA Bandit in 1997, to try to determine if there was a genetic basis for violent behavior. I have no idea what Fenfluramine had to do with that, but I mean, if you have been used essentially, right? Well, yeah. in that. And to add to it, we could talk about Tuskegee, we could talk about a billion other uh, examples of, of immoral and unethical research. And, and yeah, so I'm going to say, because we got to finish up here, yep. but I want to say right out of the gate, I'm loving this G because we're getting like, I think there's a whole episode on this, right? We, we need to, we need to bring Chris back and, and maybe some others to have a, a longer conversation about this. It's really fascinating. Um, I should say there's a viral TikTok out there about that pain study that you referenced. Um, okay. And so it's, it's a thing that is um, people are, are increasingly aware of. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for having me for your 100th episode. <laughs> I mean, I feel honored to be called an all-star. That's never happened in my life before. So <laughs> thank you for giving me that rare privilege. <laughs> uh, thank you for being here. I, I really appreciate it. Are we ready for number two, G? Do you have anything you yeah, want to add quick? Um, the, you can, um, any of the attendees can throw a question into the chat and we will do that at the end um, of the episode. We will um, focus those questions onto people. So, uh, so keep doing that. Um, there are a couple questions in there already. Um, so thanks. All right. All right. So all-star number two, he comes on the show to talk about the brain pretty often. You've heard him talking about his own research as well as the, the biological basis of schizophrenia and Austin, uh, excuse me, autism. It's Dr. Jason Cowell. How's it going, Jason? Hey, it's going awesome. I, I can't thank you all enough for having me on as well. Uh, and I completely agree with Chris that there was a lot of pressure for what's the one thing you want to say about psychology. And as I was racking my brain all weekend, that I, I couldn't come up with one, but I have an idea. Um, Very good. Let's hear it. So I think I, I knew coming on partially that I had to bring the brain. So I have the brain literally behind me on this. Um, and I think a piece of it is that uh, almost everything that I've talked about on the podcast in different episodes, but also things that I think are important to share 
all come down to neuroplasticity. So this concept of the brain, the brain that we have now is the product of a lot of development, a lot of shifting, a lot of changing in biological aspects that allow us to then have the thoughts, the feelings, and to uh, motivate the actions that we end up having. And it's all a changing process and it can be changed in the future. And so it ties a lot actually into what Chris started with in talking about uh, efficacy of things like psychotherapy. And part of that is in actual neural shifts that happen. Um, but this concept of neuroplasticity has been fascinating to me. And it's partially because the idea that we can change the brain is I think underlying so many of the new types of therapies that we're thinking about, not just in uh, a counseling psychology, but in uh, ways to deal with childhood attention deficit aspects, ways to deal with uh, relaxation in the first place or mindfulness. And so every piece of cool new things in psych or neuroscience that I was going, I wanna talk about, came back to, to aspects of brain development and neuroplasticity. And there's just two terms that I thought would be a place to just talk about for people to start to chew on. And it's experience expectant and experience dependent brain processes. So one of the ways we think about brain development is that um, as, you, as you come into the world, you're, you have certain genetic predispositions uh, that there are time windows that you're expected, so experience expectant, expected to have certain types of environmental cues. Uh, we see this most when it comes to foreign language acquisition, for instance, and that's where um, there are some studies from actually the late 80s and early 90s that suggest that if you haven't had uh, true foreign language experience before about age nine months, um, that window starts to close for you to be able to hear small, small differences between phonemes in, in foreign structures, uh, whereas an infant's any infant uh, younger than nine months is argued to have a kind of universal ability to, to change. Um, and that window starts to close partially because of the brain processes that are starting to form, the connections that are really starting to form uh, so we can remember and identify pieces of language. It comes out in vision as well. Uh, and so some of the earliest studies from the 1950s had to do with cats where they either deprived or stopped them from having certain inputs to one eye or the other. And they tried to see if it actually changed the structure of your visual cortex to have different levels of striation to so, uh, different patterns within uh, your visual structure. And it did. It turns out if you only have uh, monocular, so single eye input uh, versus binocular, it actually changes the nature of your brain. So then the question is, yeah, but can we change it back? So if you haven't had these things, can you change it back? Kind of. Uh, that's the sad but interesting piece is that you can recover some aspects of functioning, but oftentimes it's never quite the same, which brings me to the other side of brain development and the thing that a lot of us focus on, and that's experience dependent, which is, yes, the brain is partially uh, developing based off of expecting certain inputs at certain times, but it's also actively changing based on the things that you're pursuing, the types of experiences you have. So uh, that whole 10,000 uh, hours argument for becoming an expert at something, it's not 10,000 hours, it's a matter of constantly doing a task or thinking through a process so that your systems become increasingly myelinated, uh, so the connections get a fatty tissue around them so that they're more efficient at, at transferring uh, different kinds of data back and forth and it allows us to then uh, think through things more quickly. And as we think through things more quickly, we do them much better in most cases. And so that's kind of the thing that I've been putting my head around, which is a lot of the newer findings where we're talking about uh, neural feedback as a way to reduce, uh, well, attention deficit disorder is one of the arguments. 
And it's all based off of this idea of becoming more efficient, uh, more efficient neural aspects. And so I think the take home message is the brain you have right now is the product of multiple processes going in already, but also can change down the road, especially the kinds of connections that happen. Well, thank goodness. That seems like really good news. Like that, that, that the second part to that, because I thought, oh my goodness, I'm like the, the pressure to parent, like, and to speak another language before your child is nine months old. Goodness. <laughs> I'm like, All right. But it's great to know um, that there are two ways in which your, um, your brain is changing and developing. So that's awesome. Cool. I liked when you said the brain you have right now, right? which implies that I only have one, but I've got a bunch in a jar in my office right now. So that's, you, you can wow. see from the shelf behind you. So this is good. Yes. Very good. Thank you so much, Jason, for being on today, but also just being on a bunch of other times to talk me through brain stuff. Uh, very cool. Our, uh, our next guest here is a social psychologist. Mm -hmm. uh, she's been on the show to talk about weight stigma. She's talked about the I Am Psyched national tour. Uh, she's talked about famous women in the history of psychology, an episode she actually named called the Sassy Sisters of Psychology. It's Dr. Chris Smith. How's it going, Chris? <laughs> it is going. <laughs> Excellent. I love that's a very popular episode, by the way. The sassy, With the sassy sisters. sisters. Yes. The P silent. I hope everyone knows that. Oh. <laughs> so, so what do we? Uh, what do you have for us today? Well, I'm glad I'm not the only one who thought this was kind of a daunting task. Um, so I thought I'd go back to my, uh, you know, my social psychology roots, and I want to talk about the fact that. What we think we will do and what we actually do are not always the same thing. The power of the situation. So when I teach social psychology, I often start my first day with a, a story. So years ago, I was at a Metallica concert. And so we could talk about stereotypes of professors and Metallica. That's another class. <laughs> but, so at this Metallica concert, um, before the show had started, there were lots of people milling around. And as you can imagine, a lot of substances had been consumed. And some of the men in the audience and on the floor started chanting at certain women to show parts of their body. Let's just go with that. Right? And so they would sort of target a woman in the crowd and you know, show us your boobs. Let's go with that. And they would do it and, until she would, and everyone would cheer, and then they move on to another target. So one thing I asked my students is, okay, well, why were these men doing this? Were they doing this because they like to see, maybe they want to see breasts. They think this is how they do it. Um, they got caught up in the situation other men were doing it. They thought it was funny. There are lots of potential attributions you can make for that situation. And not all of the men were doing it either. So why weren't some men participating? And then when we look at the women, well, why did they participate? And mostly they probably, some of them might've just said, hey, I've got something nice to show you. Um, but others are probably thinking, if these guys won't leave me alone. And so if I do this, then they leave me alone and it goes on to something, it go on to someone else, another victim. 
and then we have this over with. And so if we think about this situation, this is probably relatively unique to this particular event of this kind of behavior. These men probably don't behave this way in other contexts. I doubt if Thanksgiving dinner, they're like, hey, grandma, right? (laughs) I hope not. (laughs) And the women um, probably, you know, in other situations also do not flash, you know, job interviews, things like that. So when, so we get caught up in the situation that we often fail to acknowledge how uh, the pressures can actually impact us. And so this is kind of one of the hallmarks of social psychology. Will you, so think about this in context of things like standing up for injustice. Will you do it? And you'll say, of course I will. Yes, I stand up. I don't want to see someone victimized. I have good morals. And then it happens and you don't. Well, why don't you? And we, because we don't exist in a vacuum that we're social creatures and we may, I mean, Kelly thought we were kind of scientists, naive scientists, where we are influenced by the real imagined presence of others and we make decisions on whether to behave in certain kinds of contexts. We'll often say that, well, you know, I don't care what other people think. I, I, I'm not a conformist, which I would have said 25 years ago when I had a perm, right? Um, <laughs> what fashion is a, a great example of this, right? And so we often think that we're much more in control of our environments than we actually are, that we, don't recognize that these subtle influences really have a dramatic impact on lots of different parts of our lives, including our behavior and whether we stand up for ourselves or others. So. So Mardi Gras is right around the corner. By (laughs) by the time this episode comes out, it will be, uh, it will be, and I'm bringing this up for two reasons. One, your story, of course, reminded me of it, but also because I, I have a friend who told me years ago, 20 years ago, he said, he went to Mardi Gras and I said, how was it? And he said, well, I spent three days in jail and then I had to come home. And I said, what? And he said, basically he was sitting on a bench and a mob kind of formed. I'm really interested in mob violence, which is why I have this story. And, um, and he said, uh, a mob kind of formed and people picked up the bench and they threw it through the window of a store. And I participated. And he basically said, I've never done anything like that before. I can't even really explain why I got involved. I just did. And I was arrested and I spent three days in jail and then they didn't charge me. They just let me go uh, at, when it was all said and done. But it was this moment, because I know this guy relatively well. And it was this moment where I thought this is, this runs completely contrary to everything I know about you uh, as, a, as a person, right? I never would have guessed that was your Mardi Gras experience. Um, and so, but it, I think it speaks to, yeah, like people doing uh, unexpected things in situations based on the power of the, the situation. We see it in mobs, uh, yeah. quote unquote, or large groups all the time. Right. And wouldn't it be nice if they all got together and said, let's feed the homeless. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> <laughs> let's create that mob. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> 
Excellent. Sometimes, you know, the anonymity factor also, and, you know, in the Metallica example, that's another factor, right? There are probably 20,000 people in this in um, stadium. So who's going to know what you did uh, in a different, you know, or even recognize you outside of this? Right. So there are a number of different factors that can play into it. Yes. And, you wow. know, and needing to collect Mardi Gras beads. Um, <laughs> Excellent. Well, um, Chris, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. That is a really, really good one and a timely one with, with a lot going on in the world as well. So important exactly. for people to hear. All right. Our next guest is not a psychologist, but we love him anyway. He's been on episodes <laughs> about comic books and superheroes. Plus we've done about three crossover episodes with his show, Serious Fun, is communication professor, Dr. Brian Carr. Hi. How's it going, Brian? I, I gotta be honest, you know, you're all so accomplished and talking about things that actually matter. I'm the guy that goes on Twitter and complains about Batman. I don't really know why I'm here, <laughs> but I'm flattered and, and grateful anyway. <laughs> we are so glad you're here. You're um, just, always one of my favorite guests and we talk about awesome stuff what do you got for us i love your background by the way thank you I, I i always like to joke that this is like we paid a little extra and got the the laser background for the class picture so that's why i chose this anyway plays great on audio this is you know like when people listen to this later they're going to be like you know what that really added something yep um, so I, what, what kind of struck me is there's a, there's a weird phenomenon, uh, in, uh, mass communication and mass media. Um, and, and you might've had the situation where it's like, boy, I really like this particular newscaster, or I really like this particular actor, um, to the point where it's like, you start like, you know, I don't know this person personally. I've never met them. We've never hung out or had a conversation yet. I feel this really sort of deep connection to them, almost not quite a, you know, not quite an ownership, but certainly an investment, right? Um, that, that I really feel that this person is someone that, uh, that is part of my life now, right? I know I felt it, um, you know, several times during my life, with folks like David Letterman, uh, Conan O'Brien, you know, a lot of these comedic influences that have really sort of changed, you know, the way I sort of see the world and all that sort of stuff. Um, turns out there's actually a psychology and mass communication crossover here uh, in, light, uh, in, in proper light of the, uh, your aforementioned introduction there uh, called parasocial interaction. The idea being basically that we do, in fact, have some sort of way to kind of, um, it's, it's a little bit of the sort of social learning theory that folks like Al Bandura talk about, um, where, where we look at the media and it sort of aids and contributes to our identity construction and we can sort of pattern ourselves off of what we see on television or, or, uh, or you know, usually television is what a lot of the research is kind of focused on. But what's fascinating is that increasingly we're seeing it more and more in the age of social media where... Um, because of this phenomenon that Manuel Castells puts a very helpful, if somewhat confusing name on called mass self-communication, where we're taking the sort of like very personalized communication of ourself and broadcasting out on a mass level, right? So I could go on there and I can talk about, you know, the stuff that's, you know, like uh, bothering me or the stuff that I'm personally invested in or like, you know, things that are happening in my family or what have you uh, into a camera posted on YouTube. And all of a sudden, I'm now beaming this very intimate sort of one-sided communication to people's uh, homes 
And lo and behold, people get really, really connected to that, right? To the point that, you know, it almost sort of kicks that parasocial interaction idea into hyperdrive, where now instead of having this mass communication, like I know David Letterman isn't talking directly to me, right? I know, um, you know, I, I we can get to the dark stuff that this has often led to. I mean, you look at stuff like, uh, was it Hinckley? Thought that Jodie Foster was communicating. Like, that, that. there is a dark component to this, absolutely. Most of the time, it's pretty harmless. But what's weird in social media and the fact that people can actually sort of, it's a sort of two-way street with mass self-communication, right? So I can both find those communicators on social media that are communicating with me, but also I can make this stuff, these 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 people, those creative works, et cetera, a larger part of my own identity. And so... Um, we can go to some fairly unhealthy places. I've noticed, for instance, um, speaking of comics, one of the things that's been truly disturbing to me is the level of um, almost, uh, how do I put crusade-like fandom behind things like the DC Extended Universe, where people are actually spending their own money to go out and buy stickers uh, pr uh, you know, because if you're not familiar, so basically Zack Snyder was the director who did a lot of the DC movies. He left Justice League because, you know, there's a death in his family. It was very sad, very tragic. Um, and then he, uh, Joss Whedon came out, made a really crappy movie. People got really, really upset about it. You know, it happens. But the, it became like there's like this sort of like almost religious fervor that people sort of made Snyder's vision or whatever they thought it was part of their identity. And so they, they go out and they go on social media and just like clamor for the Snyder Cut, the Snyder Cut. And now they're finally getting it. It's coming out next month on HBO Max. And so apparently to celebrate that, they're protesting it by, take, by taking stickers and placing them um, without permission on copies of the movies uh, in the store. Uh, you know, and, and movies that are not within the lines of his vision. And people called him out on it. They're like, well, that's what Zach would want us to do. I'm like, first off, I don't think that's actually what he'd want you to do. <laughs> you know, he's never said, go out and deface, you know, <laughs> a store's stock for me. He's never said that. Um, but there is that kind of weird thing where people do, and then, you know, they also get very personally tied into the lives of people on social media. There's a really famous Fortnite streamer called Ninja who swears he'll never play a game on stream with a woman because people, like, will start making assumptions that they're dating or something. He's an idiot, first off. Um, like, just to put too fine a point on it, like, it's a weird kind of, um, retrograde sexism that he's peddling there. But there is almost something to it that people feel a sort of personal ownership in the personal lives of these people they've never met. And because social media creates that sort of two-way channel of really uh, intimate interaction, parasocial interaction becomes something even arguably more important to talk about now. That was a long rambling answer. <laughs> but it's kind of related to what Chris Smith was just um, talking about in like, and the context of it, that that virtual context is such a an intriguing one um, and one that we really got thrown into, you know, very quickly and it ex escalated very quickly. And we just don't rightly know exactly how it's impacting us in, um, in these ways. And so it's a, it's a very timely topic. Absolutely. Brian, thank you so very, 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 very much for being here and for talking about that. We gave you an impossible task, right? Because we asked you the one thing from psychology and, mm -hmm. you know, you, you delivered it very, very well. So and like John Wick, I accomplished it. And now I'm going to be out until the next time you drag me back in. <laughs> Outstanding. Thank you, Brian. Love it. All right. Finally. He's a health psychologist joining us all the way from his new home at Oregon State. He's been on episodes related to the replication crisis and health psych. 
It's Dr. Regan A.R. Garung. How's it going, Regan? Ooh, pretty good, pretty good. All, um, great to see all you guys. And I have to say, it was really hard to just, you know, keep the mic and camera off and not want to engage with Jason and Chris and Chris and, and Brian. And uh, especially going, you know, it, it's like, come on, let's chat about this stuff, right? And I will also have to say, after just having finished, uh, or being, I should say, caught up on WandaVision, uh, I want to jump into the Marvel, uh, the MCU with Brian as well. So, <laughs> Me too. But but I won't, but I won't. And I'm actually going to use uh, WandaVision uh, as a nice little uh, bridge have, between... Do we have Brian... to warn people about spoilers for episode no, five? Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, I'm actually leaving it right now, but I'm just okay. going to say, but I'm going to say WandaVision is a vision is a wonderful bridge between Brian and what I found that I really wanted to talk about. And uh, actually what, what was interesting is when you asked, I know that I fight this battle of what is the one big thing in psych every time I teach intro psych, because from, and this is how old I am, uh, from, from 22 years ago when I first started teaching intro psych, uh, I think I would. I, I found the challenge by the last day of class to say, okay, we've had 14 weeks and now here 10 weeks of, of psych. What's the one thing I want you to walk away with? And I, I like being able to end gen intro psych with these are the four biggies, you know? So yes, you may have plowed your way through 14 to 16 chapters, but here are the biggies. And I think when I look at my list of biggies, there is a biggie that was perfect for this venue. And uh, it does actually come from my, my health psych training. It does come from uh, doing stress and coping work at, at when I was at UCLA. And, and here's what it is. Here's what it is. It, it's, to, it's to loosely paraphrase Shakespeare and, and Hamlet. And this for me is what is at a core of psychology. And you'll see automatically the connections to both Chris's and, and what Brian was talking about. And in some ways, Jason, and it's this. I think that there are few things that are purely good or bad, but it's thinking that makes it so. Okay, that's my paraphrase. And I'll, and I'll say that again. I think there are few things that are purely good or bad but it's thinking that makes it so. And that, that when, when I, when in health psychology in particular, when we talk about stress and coping, and, and Brian, you did a great job of pulling this even in, in your anger book, right? This, this, the stress and coping and appraisals and stuff like that, uh, which again shows how universal this is, the appraisal notion. But it just fascinates me that when you take a look at all aspects of our life, and even, even when you think about what Jason said with the brain, we have so much control over our thinking, but there's so much of our thinking that is automatic and outside our control, but it doesn't mean we can't get control off it. So I think, you know, when we find ourselves in situations, when we find ourselves in the pandemic, when we are stressed out, and when we stereotype, when we are prejudiced, very often stereotypes, stereotypes, it's natural, everybody does it. Prejudice, most, if not all of us have prejudices. We're not always aware of it, right? And especially prejudice, especially in this, this world, you know, we look someplace and go, oh, look at that prejudicial person, you know, and this is the classic, if your slate is clean, then you can throw the stones. Hey, people, wake up call, nobody's slate is clean. 
All right. Uh, and so I think thinking is such a powerful thing. And I've realized over the years that it really taps into not just most of the research that I do, but most of the areas that psychology influences how we behave. And for all of us, really to help our lives get as happy as possible, it's a question of grabbing hold of those automatic thoughts that we have, right? And, and changing them, right? And especially in stress and coping, especially in stress and coping, when we've got these automatic thoughts that may make us think a certain way or where we get feedback, right? And for those of us who teach student evaluations, you read that comment and stuff happens in our brains, right? But we've got these automatic knee-jerk reactions. And I think what's magic is that we can change the appraisal. We can do something about the appraisal. Going all the way back to, to Dr. Vespia, right? Uh, so much of cognitive behavioral therapy is changing those appraisals, changing those automatic thoughts, which is why, uh, which is why I just love the communality going through it. Uh, much more recently in the context of the pandemic, uh, I've done a lot of stuff on how is teaching and learning going on in the pandemic. And one of the most recent papers what it showed was a student's expectation of how well they will do in class and, and their preferred modality, that's what predicts their learning, right? I mean, so many people went into it going, oh, remote learning sucks. And it did suck for some, but there are many for whom they thrived. It was excellent. And, and here, I'm gonna, I'm gonna shout out to one of my favorite memories. This was when Ryan, uh, Al Bandura and I had dinner in Chicago, right? Yeah, we can just throw that out. Oh, Ryan, remember the time we had dinner with Al Bandura? Yeah, yeah so, you know, <laughs> right? I mean, that'll always be one of those epic memories, but self-efficacy and Al Bandura's work on self-efficacy and life is a great example. And I saw that in, in, in the pandemic. It's when students thought they could do well in a remote class, their scores were actually statistically significantly higher. When students thought that remote learning and online learning wasn't for them, their scores were statistically significantly lower. You know, and I think that's what I just love about that, that simple notion of appraisal. You know, there are few things and note, and that's where my far, paraphrase came in. I mean, Shakespeare said, there is nothing good or bad. That's not right. There are some, there are some right. things that are quite, I mean, if you are abused, if you are, you know, uh, in some situations like that, that, that's bad. But that's why my paraphrase, I think is key. There are few things that are truly good or bad but thinking makes it so. So think on people, change our thinking, whole new, a bunch of things to do. That's me, live from Oregon. <laughs> Outstanding. I love that, Regan. Thank you so much. Uh, and thank you to all of our guests, but we, we've actually got some questions in the chat here that uh, I'm gonna throw out to people. Um, now that they've kind of been, they're for specific people, but they don't have to be for specific people, right? So if others want to chime in, please do. Um, first, uh, to Chris Vespia. Um, so are there policies that need to be put in place in order to alter the inequity in psychotherapy? Are there already policies in place that are not implemented? That's a policy um, question, Chris. Do you have answers yes. to policy questions? <laughs> yes, to both. So I, I was actually reading to my students. They love that. They love it when I read to them. <laughs> uh, but I, I was reading a very long quote from a journal article because really that's, that's how I roll. Um, 
that was talking about um, both the Nas National Institutes of Health and the National Institute of Mental Health implementing policies back in the 90s that required a certain percentage of research participants to be or required representativeness of participants in studies that were gonna be funded by NIH and NIMH. And in fact, it didn't happen. So, you know, this was happened, let's say the policy was, was put in place in 1994, 1995. This article was written in 2010 and was reporting data about up to that saying, yeah, most of the studies didn't even report on the race or ethnicity of the participants. And those that did had underrepresentation of every group other than African-Americans. Um, so, I mean, certainly there are things like that that would that would help. Um, I also, I admit I'm intrigued by the notion of helping to train our therapists better in the science behind this as well as the theory. So I think too often folks think about therapy as this touchy-feely kind of, my friends all come to me with my problem or with their problem, so I bet I'll be good at this, which is, is not to you know downplay natural empathy skills, but mm -hmm. is to say that what happens in therapy is not what happens when you're listening to your friends. Uh, and it's a little off topic, but I wanna actually address something that Regan just said because I'm with him, right? I'm totally with him on the appraisal piece. And I'm with him on, on um, the slight revision of, of Shakespearean theory. What's interesting about the, or Shakespearean- uh, uh, No, we can call words. it theory. I like it. Yeah, like, you know, Shakespeare theory research. It's that's, my, that's my orientation as a therapist. Did you know that? I'm a Shakespearean. Well, you're a Shakespearean therapist. <laughs> yeah. That's... It's a narrative therapy approach. Yeah. Um, and so- so, uh, but this new approach to personally relevant therapy, um, Fred Leong, who is very well known in the multicultural literature, one of his comments on this is that cognitive behavioral therapy and reappraisal actually may not be as helpful for some East Asian clients hmm. because the notion of the problem being located within the person does not allow the, the saving of face that is necessary within the culture. Sure. And so if you're working with a depressed, a depressed client, you might actually be better off using a practical problem solving approach on the effects of the depression than trying to challenge the internal working models or the irrational beliefs, whatever you wanna call them. And that that also requires less emotional self-disclosure on the part of the client, which is also more, more culturally consistent. So that's policy and just yeah. other random stuff. You know, I routinely finding my, I find myself wanting to go back to college and usually it's to, to study something other than psychology, right? But now today I'm finding myself wanting to study psychology just from you all, right? <laughs> that I that I want to take your classes. So I agree. In. I was so you also... can listen to me read journal articles because I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> just... And maybe not Chris's, but you know, <laughs> I was really struck by the um the the difficulty of the task that you all said it was like very hard to pick a topic. And I I think to myself, psychology is so dynamic as a science, like it changes all the time that the topics you pick today would likely have been very different, like six months ago or a year ago or five years ago. And I think it's so fascinating that you each picked a topic which is very current 
and very related to what's happening in our world today. And it's one of the things that I love most about psychology is that it is, um, it, as Regan would say, it's everywhere. <laughs> psychology is everywhere, but it's also at every time. And it's, it, it meets our needs at the time. Would you agree with that, panelists? I don't know if anybody has a, a thought about um, is, is psychology ever changing or is it um, just solid um, foundation? I think it's both in some ways that there are some, it, well, for example, the power of the situation. The power of the situation is relevant 50 years ago, 20 years ago now, but how that might manifest itself and how we might then apply it, I think is more current. And psychology builds upon itself. So it is constantly, it's dynamic, it's evolving as we learn more and more about humans. I mean, Jason's uh, research, I think is, in you know, the brain is, is a great example. I mean, 30 years ago, we thought you damaged the brain and that was kind of it. So. Yeah. It, that's a great answer, Chris. I, I totally agree. And I, I was actually thinking as I was thinking about this task that we gave you, like, what would my answer be? And by the way, I'm really regretting that Georgina and I should have like placed bets on what people would have brought to the table. I would have been horribly wrong, but I'm regretting not having done that ahead of time. Um, I would have done them no better. <laughs> yeah, I might have gotten Christmas, uh, if it's hard to say. Um, but I do think there is, because when I thought about it, for me, I was sort of thinking about like, what are those, what are the core things, like the things that are, that were true a gajillion years ago and will be true going forward? Like the, you know, that, that aren't necessarily context specific. Um, and so um, things that you might consider uh, to use language from, from sort of the social world is um, like threshold concepts. You know, what are the threshold concepts in psych I was thinking of? But Jason, you look like you had something to say. No, you did not. Okay, well, I got a question for you when you... Uh... Oh, I mean, I did have something to say previously off of Christmas. Uh, oh, go for it. Um, I think one of the issues we have is just we have more data than we know what to do with. <laughs> and I think that's, that's honestly part of the biggest issue with psych right now and where, where it is absolutely growing is that there are these foundational concepts that we're building on. But I think about just a, a simple EEG study I would run that's five minutes long I have 32 channels collecting at 2000 data points per channel per second. And so in a five minute period, I have millions of data points and I don't have an, I don't have the ability to look at all of those. And that's the case with everything in psych. And so one of the, one of the things I think that's really exciting is actually these massive computational models that are starting to happen where people are going, what have been the things we've collected over the past 30 years and how do we make sense of all of it at once? to really figure out what are these things that hold up and will continue to and how do we build on them. Right now, we're actually just hampered by our ability to process data well, which sounds weird to say, but it's just, yeah. it's a piece to build off of. Well, yeah, I think there's a, a really interesting different part to that as well. I think, you know, think about all those times when psychology got onto a certain track right? And we've, we've got some dark periods in our history, right? I mean, there were times when so many psychologists were on the eugenics bandwagon, right? There were times when psychology was predominantly psychodynamic. Uh, and I think 
some of that. Now, this screen, if I may say so, I love all of you guys because y'all are all good teachers who think about the whole big picture. There are still people in psychology today who are still only focused on a certain area. And, you know, Georgina, I would love to think that everybody in psychology is working towards you know, uh, paying attention to the current situation. But there are some psychologists, and when you look at some of the journal articles, you see this, that they are soldiering on on their pet projects, no matter what's going on in the world. So I think as science, you know, I, we need to do a better job of getting science out there, and we need to do a better job of making science more relevant and making our connections. And I think UW-Green Bay has, does a great job of making those connections with science in the community and getting that science into action. Uh, and I think more of us, more places need to do more of that. So, uh, so that's why I think, I think that relevance, it's where you look. It's where you look. And he, right here, you're looking at people who are trying to be relevant and working hard to be relevant. There are too many corners where it's just not the case. We are, we're running out of time, but I've got like two questions that I really, in the, in the chat that I really want to tackle. So we're going to do it, but can I, can I get like a, like two minute answers uh, as we, as we, to the best that we can? Um, Jason, wait, where'd it go? Um, neuroplasticity. Uh, how does neuroplasticity impact learning languages after the nine month mark? At what age is learning a new language the most difficult? Um. Probably college, actually, which is uh, <laughs> when you're really thinking about it, it's it's just the windows are aren't quite there. So it's easier to learn languages that are within the domain, uh, a similar. So if you think of the Latin based languages or you think of the Germanic languages, it's easier to learn another within that same uh, domain. And it's just because we can hear it more easily. You can hear the differences and produce the differences. And so uh, without you'll still be able to pick up the language and you'll still be able to learn aspects of it, but you'll always have a slight uh, inflection to the way that you speak and the way that you produce it because you can't necessarily hear the differences. Um, and, and that's a key piece. If you've ever had the experiences, you've started to learn a new language, I'll make this really fast, Ryan, sorry. But if you've had uh, that moment where you're, you're producing the thing and it sounds exactly like what your instructor keeps repeating back to you and you're going, no, I'm saying that, I'm saying that, it's oftentimes because you can't hear the slight differences in inflection. The more you practice, there is an argument that you might be able to recover pieces of that, um, but that's what makes it harder, is just uh, that piece of it. Huh. Outstanding, thank you. Another one, this one is for Chris Smith. Like Metallica and the social situations, is that the same idea as when, I think there might be an opportunity for some myth busting here, so I wanted to take it that way. Uh, when people do not call the police or 911 when someone else is in danger, um, Yes. Well, yeah, the power of the situation. I mean, looking at the whole helping literature, one of those is that, <clears throat> I mean, there are a few reasons people may not do that. One is pluralistic ignorance. You know, we all, what we often can do is um, you, you, it may not be clear whether it's an emergency or not, right? Um, and who wants to, I, I give an example, you know, you hear someone screaming in a dorm and you burst in because you want to help and it turns out no help is needed then you can be very, um, you know, people don't want to embarrass them themselves. If other people are witnesses, they figure someone else is going to do it. And so it very much is the situation where it, there are a number of different potential options in how you um, approach it and whether you call the police or not. And people may err on the side of not doing it because I'm not clear, it's an emergency, 
someone else will do it, or I, I don't know how to help. Right. I often wonder the the for me in the in the handful of times when I've been in those circumstances, I've actually found myself thinking, am I the best person to to do right. this? Right? Is it like I I don't have any. I'm not the kind of doctor that can help people. Um, and so what, what do I do uh, for this person who's, who's fainted or something like that? Um, interesting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you don't want to make the situation worse. Right. And you, people may also feel fear repercussions. If someone is getting harmed, then you might, if you intervene, then you also might be uh, the victim of this. I mean, th this has happened just relatively recently. I read a story about exactly that, someone who intervened in a domestic violence situation and ended up getting killed. So, so there are a number of potential factors in there. Um, so it is, again, a unique situation. And you know, we have so much information coming at us at that situation, and we're trying to make judgments mm -hmm. on how to best integrate all that information and then what to do with it. And I think that's also true in sort of in Brian's world of like talking about social media too. Like, do you mm -hmm. intervene on comments and things like, like that? And so it's like a, a, a similar thing, but virtually it's, it's fascinating. And I think Ryan, you and I could sit here and chat with these brilliant folk for hours and hours. There's so much to, uh, to think about and to, and to talk about. And I hope that this episode has inspired our listeners uh, to do that, to go back and listen to the episodes where these all-stars have talked about uh, these different topics and to continue to engage in conversations about cool psychological stuff going on in our world um, and how that can make our world a better place. I think it's amazing. So thank you all for your brilliance. Yay. Yes. <laughs> One more time with the cowbell. There we go. Wow. Very happy good. 100. Happy 100. <laughs> there can never Thank be too much cowbell. <laughs> you know, I will tell you when, when we started this, my, my original thought was worst case scenario, no one listens. And I spend time talking to brilliant people about interesting things. And, and that's all it is. And so I am, I am more than happy that we have listeners who, who care about us and love us. But even if we did it, I can tell you quite honestly, um, that, that listening to you all teach me things has been an absolute joy. So I have loved these 100th episodes. Um, I'm very, very thankful for, you, for, for these guests, but all of our guests' willingness to come in and spend time talking with us and help educate me and help educate our listeners and, and all of that. So this has been a real treat. Thank you very, very, very much uh, for, for doing this. Thanks for inviting me. And a big hand for Ryan and Georgina. Oh. <laughs> thank you very, very much. So um, I really want to say another quick thank you also to our intern, Kelsey. Like I said, you can see her work firsthand if you give us a follow at Psych and Stuff on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Um, that's a good place to ask questions, a good place to request topics for episodes, contribute to uh, uh, segments, things like that. Uh, you can also follow me on Twitter. I have a new handle, everyone. It's at Anger Professor. So a relatively new hand, handle. So at Anger Professor. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, all the places. Gee, where are you and, and what? where can people find you? Except for not on TikTok, but all the rest of the places at Georgina WD. So G-E-O-R-J-E-A-N-N-A-W-D. 
I'm, I'm just going to warn everyone right now, there's a good chance I'm going to need a TikTok intervention at some point. I think it might be cutting down on some productivity, um, but we'll, we'll see. It's, it's my favorite of platforms these days. So, um, all right. Psych and Stuff is a production of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. The executive producer is me, Ryan Martin, and the production manager is Kate Farley. Our audio production coordinator is Bill Salek. Our sound engineer for this episode is Sarah Miller. Our graphic designer is Kimberly Vlees. And our intern is Kelsey Engelhart. Special thanks to all our guests today. If you haven't already, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe to us on your favorite podcast platform. You can also head over to our website, uwgb.edu slash podcast, to check out past episodes of this and all our shows. I'm your host, Ryan Martin, and I'm here with my co-host, Georgina Wilson-Dungas. Keep being amazing.